Yes, I'm Fori, and um, yeah, I'm reading from Acts 4, uh, 1 to 21. Peter and John before the council. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the, Sadduce the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men who came, the number of men came to about five thousand. On the next day, their rulers and the elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Cephas and John and Alexander, and all who were part of the high priest family. And when they had set them in in the midst, they inquired, "By what power?" Or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. And there, in salvation, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed and standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For what a noble sign, notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that we may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in the name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have we cannot not speak of what we have not seen and what we have seen and heard. And when they had heard further threaten them, they let them go, finding there was no way to punish them, because the people for all were praising God for what, for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. There's a young Bible student in the city of Lima, in the country of Peru in 1990. His name was Francisco. He uh, was studying the scriptures, and much like Peter that we've just read about, had this burning inside of his heart to help the people around him to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Francisco in particular has a heart to reach um, these, uh, this kind of growing gang. It was a political party called the Senderistas. You want to say that, hey, Senderistas. And uh, they were a brutal 
kind of communist party that were rising up in Peru in the sort of late 80s and uh, were beginning to, to, to become a brutal movement. And, and the city of Lima was growing in population rapidly as people were fleeing from the outlying areas into the city to find some sort of protection. And so the senderistas began to do these kind of uh, bombing attacks in the city because they were losing a level of control. Francisco has a heart to somehow reach these people. He so badly cares about these senderistas. And what's interesting about the senderistas was that they were about 50% female. There's not many kind of uh, those types of guerrilla groupings that were you know, so evenly spread, male, female. And they were young, uh, very politically passionate people. And he had this heart to reach them and to, to help them to understand the, the mercy and the love of Christ that could bring peace to a war-torn nation. And Francisco says, God, give me a way to preach the gospel to these people. Now, as every good story starts, he's walking down the street in the city of Lima. And as he's walking down the street, this bomb blast kind of erupts right next to him. Everyone flees, and he stands. And as the police arrive, they, they take him as one of the prime suspects and put him in jail. He's obviously totally uh, kind of shocked, terrified, uncertain what to do. Until a couple of moments later, probably weeks, he looks around and he realizes, my prayers have just been answered. This prison is filled with senderistas. All around him are these people who have been gathered, who have been caught, and are put in prison. And the first person he begins to preach the gospel to is a young 24-year-old student, Maria, and he tells her about the gospel. She was tasked in this kind of military guerrilla army to be the person who would make sure that every person that they tried to kill was actually dead. And so she had a pistol, and she would finish the job. This was her task. And so if you think of somebody who could possibly believe that you could be forgiven, she was one of those who said, I could never possibly be forgiven. So when Francisco says, I promise you, that in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is available to you. The story goes that as she prays the sinner's prayer and as she says, Jesus, won't you forgive me? The experience of forgiveness was so overwhelming that to date she has said that there is nothing like the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Sometimes God will answer our prayers in profound ways. God answered Francisco's prayers by a, a false fake arrest that puts him in prison and gives him the audience that he longed for. 60 more people before he was released from prison came to faith, and to date, as far as I'm aware, there is still a church in the prison in Lima. What a remarkable thought. We begin to smell. We don't see it, and we don't experience it in this text, but we begin to smell. We're almost standing on the holy ground of the martyrs as we begin to look at this text, because Peter, for the first time, Peter and John, receive opposition for their proclamation of the gospel. It's, it's, a, it's kind of like the, the chills in the air begin to come. Little does the church know that for 2,000 years there would be these persecutions that would come and go through the church um, in varying parts of the world. But here is one of the first moments in the, the story of Acts where suddenly it's not so simple. 
The honeymoon feels like it's kind of coming to an end in a way. Uh, up till now, it says that Peter has preached the gospel. First, 3,000 people come to the, the kind of faith in Jesus, and they trust in him. Then it seems like another 5,000 are added, and, and it seems like the Bible's recording just men. So, so there's a growing swell, and it says they enjoyed favor with God and with mankind. There was this sense of this stuff is going really well. The honeymoon is beautiful, and life is good, and suddenly... Acts chapter 4 arrives, and suddenly some opposition is presented to the church. Now, what you've got in this scene here is Peter and John who are, who are preaching the gospel. They're preaching the gospel after something remarkable has just happened. Uh, Andy preached us through it last week, but what's happened is that this lame beggar who was at the temple gates has been remarkably healed. Uh, this is a guy that more than likely Jesus had even walked past. I imagine Jesus walked past him sometimes and went, don't worry, buddy, your time's coming. There's other guys who got you covered, my disciples. I don't know if he really said that, but probably in the back of his mind, he's going, I'm saving some for later. And amazingly, Jesus doesn't heal this lame beggar, but, but uh, the, the Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2, and the, the disciples are filled with the Spirit, and then we see them beginning to do what Jesus was doing. That's the story of Acts, by the way. That's why we've called it To Be Continued. If you've missed the beginning of the journey, To Be Continued is basically our way of going, the story of Acts is a reminder that we too are walking in the story of Jesus, and we too are called to continue in the ministry of Christ, just like the book of Acts called us. The book of Acts, there was a bunch of people who filled with the Spirit, and they begin to do what Jesus did and live the way Jesus lived. And so these uh, Peter and John have literally walked past this lame beggar and they said, silver or gold we don't have, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he gets up and he walks and he rejoices. And that was a bridge too far for these leaders of the temple. It says in verse two that they were greatly annoyed by them because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. So what you've got here is you've got the Sadducees. Um, if you haven't heard it and you haven't been to Sunday school, they often say the Sadducees are sad, you see, because one of the reasons they're sad, you see, is because their strong conviction was that there was no resurrection from the dead. So to have somebody preaching that there's resurrection in the dead, uh, from the dead is a total offense. These are the, the powerful parliamentarians of the Jewish society. And here we've got Peter and John who are standing up in the center of uh, Jerusalem, which is the center of Israel, and in the center of the city is the temple, which is the center where all the big decisions are made. This is the center of society, and at the center of the temple, you've got the most powerful people called the Sadducees, who are the powerful parliamentarians who don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees did, but the Sadducees didn't. And these guys are the kind of high-power lawyers of the time, and they're looking and they are not happy because they're preaching the resurrection from the dead. Not only that, you'll see later, they're uneducated men. This is an offense to them. You've also got the priests who are also a little annoyed because the priests are the guys who are managing the temple. They're the guys who are meant to be preaching. It's like somebody else came, took the mic out of my hand and started preaching. I might be a little bit uh, disgruntled. And here pre Peter is preaching, and these priests are going, this is not okay. And then you've got the temple guard, who's the guy who's basically instructed by the priest to make sure order is kept. And he's going, this is really not okay, because they're doing, and my reputation, I've been told by the priest, uh, you know, to make sure order is kept, and there is no order, and people are starting to follow this guy, and the major problem is that what this guy did is remarkable. <laughs> 
he really did heal someone. And so they are tired. They don't know what to do. Their hands are totally tired. They're frustrated, but they're powerless because everyone is going, wow, we don't know what just happened, but Peter just healed someone. And Peter's not claiming it was him. He's claiming it was Jesus. And as Michael Eaton says, he says, so often opposition to the gospel is very unreasonable. It doesn't hold a lot of logic. It doesn't always make sense. You've, you've got a guy who's just healed a man who was blamed from birth. There's no kind of disputing it. It happened. And yet somehow they managed to go, this is not okay. I mean, who would ever complain about a lame person, lame from birth, getting healed? Unless you're offended by something else. Unless you've got preconceived needs for something else to happen and it offends your ego or it offends your preferred outcome or your expectations. Now maybe you dragged a friend along and they willingly said they would come to church, but you were praying, Lord, make sure they don't preach on money and make sure they don't preach on persecution of the church. And uh, I'm sorry you got the other one. Let me suggest to you, maybe if you have been brought along and you're kind of going, oh, this whole thing of persecution, that just seems a little outdated. Well, let me suggest to you a few reasons why it's really important, I suppose, to speak about it. Firstly, we're, we're in this passage of the Bible. We don't get to choose. We're going through the book of Acts, and this is where we are. So, hey, that's, a, that's one of the reasons. But, but more importantly, it's probably good to realize that all good things seem to receive opposition. All really, really good things tend to get opposition. Now just go read the stories of history. Go look at William Wilberforce, who, who, who abolished slavery almost through his life of, of labor. It was only at the end of his life that slavery was abolished. He worked so hard against powerful people to abolish slavery. Now we look and we go, who would ever think slavery is a good idea? But then, most of England thought it was a great idea. But he pushed and he pushed and he pushed. Think of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King. Hey, these are amazing people who did amazing things, but they nearly lost their lives doing it. How many assassination attempts were put on him and his colleagues for doing that? Truly good things always receive some sort of opposition. Shouldn't be surprised if, if the church receives opposition in some way, shape, or form. It's just the way it goes. I'd also say that in some ways, it's actually a demonstration of its value. You would be annoyed if you had a Christian buddy who at the first moment they were, received any opposition or mockery, they just went, oh, sorry, oh, I should never have said that. You would be, be concerned that they don't really believe it. The point of a Christian is that you believe you've heard something so good that you can't keep it to yourself. You'd be frustrated with your friend if they didn't push back and go, you know what, I don't mind what you feel about me, but I still have to help you. to. to I'm going to do everything I can with all the love and all the skill that I've got to be your friend and to help you to understand that I really believe Jesus cares for you deeply and he died on the cross and strangely, bizarrely, amazingly, he rose again to invite you into a new life, into a new kingdom. And I know it sounds a little strange, but I'm never gonna stop loving you towards that end. Hey, the global estimate, according to a study of global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell, says that uh, in 2015 to 2017, about 90,000 Christians were killed for their faith each year worldwide. So this is not to say that it's, a, it's an old story. You'll see in the book of Acts as we track this, that this is, a, this is a thing that has happened and will continue to happen. And persecution or opposition comes in so many different forms. I, I almost prefer what Jesus says about opposition. In Luke chapter 6, he says it like this. He says, blessed are you. 
Blessed in Jesus' language is often the word for kind of uh, a, a joyful to the point of envy. People go, wow, you, you've, got a, you've got something so deep that it's, it's enviable. You, you're happy despite your discomfort. He says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Hey, Jesus, look at those, those little lines. Hate you for your faith. Hey, hate can take on many forms. Hate can just be like, you know, I, 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 the way I express anger towards people is often just passive aggressive. Hatred isn't like, you know what, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to make your life a misery. I'm going to get you fired. It can just be excluded from the circle. Just left out. Just, just kind of pushed down. Just patronized. Oh, sweet, you, think, you little Christians. How sweet of you. Or exclude you for your faith. Jobs, teams, friendship circles. Or spurn your name as evil. Probably a common one that, that, that Christians should become uh, more aware of as you read social media, as you become more socially aware of what's going on. Christians are regularly now being accused of bigotry, being repressive bigots who are kind of hateful people who, who want to put you know, strange, bizarre boundaries on people who should be given freedom to express themselves however they want. So it's, it's a kind of form of gaslighting where suddenly the people who for 2,000 years have been seen as the servants who bring love and, and grace to the world are now being turned on and saying, hey, you're hateful. You won't let me express my life the way I want. Hey, there's this, this kind of turning around. This is not uncommon, and Jesus said it would happen. It's not uncommon. So these leaders are getting rather frustrated. They're turning on, Jesus, uh, on Peter and John. And one of the big questions they ask in chapter 7 is they say, by what power or by what name did you do this? It's actually a very familiar story because in John chapter 9, something similar happens. There's a blind guy who gets healed by Jesus, and they pull the blind guy, he's probably the same crew, and they look at him and they say, how did this happen? And the blind guy goes, it was that guy. I can't remember his name, actually. I was blind when he healed me. And, and then he was gone. I don't, and eventually he, he ties the knot. He says, it was, it was this guy, Jesus. He healed me. And they don't want to acknowledge that Jesus could have possibly healed him. It's an amazing story because these Pharisees now are going, uh, Sadducees are going, this feels familiar. We killed Jesus. We got rid of him. And now they're saying he's still doing that stuff because their answer is exactly the same. Remember that guy you killed? He just healed him. I know, like, some of you are looking at me going googly-eyed, like, really, does this actually happen? The answer is yes. This is what's happening, and even the Sadducees are, are googly-eyed. They're going, how could this possibly be? We got rid of him, and now Peter is saying he rose from the dead, he's poured out his spirit, and he too is carrying on healing. And it's in his name that we've done this. They are concerned. And, and here's an interesting little fact. You see, these, uh, f most of the, the sort of ruling elite in Israel at the time, they, would have not, they wouldn't have minded the odd of miracle. They, they lived in a, in a supernatural world. They expected miracles, but, but they didn't expect miracles to come from certain people, especially not uh, educa uneducated people. You watch the, see the word educated come up a lot because what they expected was that powerful uh, kind of educated Pharisees or Sadducees, people who were teachers in the law, hey, they could have said, oh, we know where you got your power from. You were, you were with that rabbi and that rabbi taught you. And, and that's where, oh, okay, it makes sense. 
What's so frustrating to them is they're going, we can't attribute your power to anything. And you keep going saying it's Jesus. And they're frustrated by this, this conundrum that they find themselves in. They would love to reason it away in another kind of way. So in verse 8, don't you love this line? It says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he goes into this wonderful dialogue of explaining basically this, this gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, rulers and peoples and elders, if we're being examined concerning a good deed, it's like, are you, are you giving us a hard time because we did something kind to a person? Is that what you're asking here? Done to a crippled man? By what means he's been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, here's a little brave moment, whom you crucified... Whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Can you see all the, the triggers? If you're a Sadducee, whom you crucified, the one who's been raised from the dead, they're anti-resurrection. These guys are like, they're being triggered all the time. By him this man is standing before you well. Peter stands before the greatest powers in Israel, in the center of, of Jewish society, and he stands before these people and he tells them the gospel with amazing courage and filled with the Spirit. You, you go, where does this power come from? In our prayer meeting this morning, we were saying, God, give us a fresh power. Where do you get this kind of courage unless God gives it to you? Hey, it's my experience that when you're in those situations, God often does give it to you. My concern often is that we're not in those situations enough to need the power. Are you in positions where you need to explain the gospel enough? I want to suggest to you that Jesus said, when you're in those positions, I'll give you the words that you need. It's a remarkable promise that he made. You think of all the stuff Jesus taught. One of the things he, was, he made sure to get into scripture was that he said, when you are in places and positions where you're not sure what you would need to say and people are giving you a hard time for your faith, he says, don't worry. Don't even plan. I'll give you the words and the time. I'll give you what you need to say. John Bunyan uh, similarly had moments like this. John Bunyan now is famously known for the Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, most of us don't know John Bunyan's story. All we do is we love this, the book that he's read, if we've read it, and we imagine him sitting in some beautiful British countryside writing books and you know, enjoying whiling his life away. But it wasn't like that. John Bunyan spent uh, three different stints in prison. And uh, he says that in his second stint, he's, and, and he begins to, to, much like Francisco, he begins to preach the gospel in prison. And many people believe and, and come to faith. And one author says that he gained a new awareness of the truth of Scripture and the presence of Christ, declaring this. He says this, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ also was never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen him and felt him indeed. It's remarkable. He's in prison as he writes this. So often we want to feel God, but we want to feel him with our remote in one hand, a pina colada in the other, and kind of go, she, God, where are you? And he's going to go, go preach the gospel. I promise you. Jesus said, you go tell people about me and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Maybe it's time to put the pina colada down and the remote and to start to move to some of the less comfortable places. In his moment of highest pressure and gospel opportunity, he presents Jesus. What a wonderful thing. He carries on in verse 12, and he says, And there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must 
be saved. It's a challenge, right? We live in a world that says, don't all roads lead to the same place? You know, aren't we all blindfolded and groping on different parts of the elephant, which is flawed in a million ways? The answer is no, says Peter. Notice what Peter doesn't do here. He doesn't apologize. And go, oh, sure, sorry, I, I should never have said that stuff. This cripple, actually, I don't know what happened. And I just, you're so right. You're so right. I don't know what I'm doing here. I just could never, I don't know, apologies. And walk out. No, he doesn't. He, he stands up. He doesn't apologize for his message. And he doesn't apologize for what's happened. He comes with a courage and a conviction to say, there is nothing more important in heaven and on earth than to understand that God in Jesus Christ is a Savior who loves every human being who wants you to come to a beautiful, saving knowledge of Him. He wants you in His kingdom. He wants to love you radically, and He wants to send you into this world because you've got one life before you go to be with Him forever and enjoy Him in His kingdom, and you've got this life to proclaim it. And so He doesn't apologize. Neither does He modify His message. He doesn't tweak it to make it a little more comfortable, a little easier. He could have just, you know, at least left out the one that says that you crucified. He could have just, you know. Now, don't get me wrong. I want us to hear this. Some of us love to pick a fight. You know, like you make your life groups difficult. You, you love to fight with anyone who just will, will, you know, and everyone's like, come on, dude. I'm not talking about picking a fight with people about whether Jonah really happened or talking about stuff like that. This is about a person who is who's not modifying the message to make it more comfortable. He actually was very respectful in the introduction to his talk. He said, hey, hey leaders and elders, he, he, he respects, he expects, according to chapter 3, he actually expects that they will come, that times of refreshing would come. He's really anticipating. Peter took a long time to realize that the gospel was for the Gentiles as well. And something inside of Peter's heart is going, I anticipate this Joel 2 prophecy that times of refreshing will come to these people. He's looking, he's going, this is my moment. The Sadducees, the chief priests are all here. This is the moment they are going to turn around and what Joel chapter 2 said, times of refreshing will come to Israel. He hadn't quite computed yet that that was probably going to happen last. First the gospel was going to go to the very ends of the earth and then probably come back to, to Jerusalem. And so he's still waiting for this refreshing and he preaches it like that. But unfortunately they don't accept it. He doesn't modify but they don't accept it. Hey, Peter insists that Jesus is raised from the dead. There's a few key things as you present the gospel to any friend or family. It's that he died on our behalf and that he rose again to include us in his new life. If you want to present the gospel in a short way, you, those are two key parts. Jesus loves you enough that he would die on your behalf so that you don't need to die in the punishment of your sin. And amazingly, he rises again and he gives us his life. And he says, anyone who trusts in me can start this life again. You get a, you get a new leaf. You get a fresh start. It's remarkable. Now, when they saw the boldness in verse 13 of Peter and John, perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. If only they were educated. If only they had been to one of the top universities in Israel. Then they could go, oh, that's why. But they hadn't. If only they had been to one of the best schools in Sunningdale. Then we could go, that's what makes them so impressive. If only they had... That's what the Sadducees would have loved, but they didn't. All they said is, we did it because Jesus gave us the power, and we're actually only doing this because Jesus has commissioned us, and we live for Jesus alone. 
hey, what disqualifies you from maybe sharing the gospel message with the world around you? The, the, the kind of voices in our head often do say exactly that. I don't know enough. I haven't been equipped enough. I haven't got the skills. I haven't got those one-liners, Roger. You, you seem to just pull them out of your head so easily. Well, I don't have those things. That's okay. Rather try something. Jesus said he'll give you the words, you go. Hey, we will find some resources if you want them, but the point is, is let's keep going. Let's keep trying. Let's keep loving. Let's keep inquiring. Let's keep asking questions. Who are you? Where do you come from? What, what, what do you love? And by the way, what's your stance on faith and life? Wow, can I share my story? One of the most profound ways to help people in our generation to, to understand the gospel is to tell them the gospel through the lens of your life and your changed story. That's what they're doing here. They're telling the story of what Jesus has done through a lame beggar. I'm a lame beggar in so many ways. I'm still a little crippled and Jesus is still healing me. I've got a living story. I get to share with people not just everything Jesus has done 20 years ago. Jesus is doing stuff as we speak. Mickey would love it to be a little quicker. <laughs> Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred. So now they have this little tribal council. Peter and John and the beggar get out of here. They have this little council. They confer with each other. What shall we do with this, men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. They're in a predicament. It's a tough one because the story of Jesus is now happened. You can't argue with the story. It's, it's living and it's present. I'd encourage you to make sure you're living out of story. I'd encourage you to make sure that, that your gospel story is alive in your own heart. Uh, somebody shared recently that uh, one of their family uh, kind of habits, and this is something we've not done yet, is to actually share their gospel story to each other. You know, sometimes at the dinner table, instead of talking about, you know, how school was, to actually go, hey, tell me, how do you understand the gospel? Do, imagine you've got a minute. Explain it to the family. And, and they're learning to, to present the gospel to each other. What a wonderful habit. You're learning to share the gospel with each other. Do you think we as a church are... Maybe being asked to speak too much. Do you think we as a church have a tendency to, to butt our way in and share too much? Or do you think we as a church are on the continuum of being a little quiet and, and kind of blending in? I'll let you answer that. But I would probably err on the side for myself of going, we probably err on the side of blending in. Staying cool. Keep friends. Don't, don't ruffle anyone's feathers. I, I would suggest we don't need to pick a fight. We don't need to ruffle feathers. But we do need to live a life of love that presents the gospel. But Peter and John answered them, listen to this, here's the clincher, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. If you don't have a life verse, maybe you could choose this one. If you don't have a verse by which you live and peg your life on, maybe this is a good one to consider. Peter's in a predicament in a way, but he actually invites them into his predicament. He says, hey guys, what would you do if you were me? Well, a very powerful way of presenting the gospel, by the way, is to include people in your story and you say, you know what, this is what happened to me and this is what I've been through and here's how Jesus has healed and transformed and shaped my life. If this had happened to you, what would you do if you were me? Because what happens in my heart is I can't but share it. 
I can't hold it to myself. I would be selfish. I would be unkind. It would be the most unloving thing I could possibly do. Hey, not to mention it would be plain old disobedient. Because my king, the one who saved me, his final parting words to me, just as he rose and, and, and ascended to heaven, was this. Go, make disciples of all nations, preaching in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, baptizing them. John Bunyan has a little interaction. This is, I think, one of the first times he's going to get put in prison for uh, preaching the gospel. And the, the powers, the king of the time, was really frustrated. And the judge says to him this. He says, I'll let you go if you promise not to preach. So the judge looked down at his bench at John Bunyan, this kind of tinker preacher. Sir, John Bunyan replied, I'll stay in, pr in prison till the moss grows on my eyelids rather than disobey God. He spent another three years before getting let out. He preached a little longer, went back into prison again, got let out again, went back into prison again because this kind of uh, unstable king kept changing his mind on what to do with Christians. And it was his third or second time in prison where he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, a remarkable book that has served and, and, and carried so many believers. I'll stay in prison till the moss grows on my eyelids rather than disobey God. We live in a world that so loves the approval of people. So loves it that we don't even know how deeply it lives inside of us. We hate conflict. We hate being uh, kind of unliked by people. We go to all kinds of ends, whether it's changing the shape of our bodies or, or buying new clothes or uh, kind of doing different activities to make sure that at least some people will approve and accept us. It's remarkable, and none of us are exempt from it. Amazingly, Peter stands up and he says, what would you do? It's either listen to you or obey God. Either I shoot for your approval or I shoot for obeying the one who has saved me and who loves me and who's king of the world and who will return to bring me back to be with him. And I'll look him in the eyes and I will say, I obeyed you as best I could for as long as I could. Obedience or approval. It's not a one-off event. It's an ongoing journey of multiple forks in the road, daily, hourly, minutely sometimes, of what do I choose and how do I love? If you live for the approval of people, you make it nearly impossible to love with what they need most. It's really tough. If you're trying to, to get people to like you, it's really hard to love them well. Almost impossible. Get the feeling Peter had a moment in his life where he set his course. He set his course there and he said, you know what, I'm here for, for, for obedience to Jesus from here on out. I love how wisely he does it as well. Remember, he's filled with the Spirit. He's not picking a fight. He's not trying to, to go to prison. He's not trying to become a, a, a Christian hero that gets written about. All he's trying to do is obey God and love people as best he possibly can. Hey, I pray that none of us get sent to prison or get held or uh, against our will or, or, or any of these miserable things. But you know what? If it does happen, I would suggest that for most of us, it would probably serve to deepen our faith. It would probably serve to deepen our joy in the gospel. It would probably serve to strengthen our conviction about the presence of God. So if it happens, and it will, if you continue to love people with the gospel, it will. People will do it in lesser or greater degrees. Hey, the way I face opposition often 
is a patronizing, that's sweet, I'm so happy you found your calling, <laughs> kind of way. Good for you. You do you. It's a kind of snub to go, that's ha I'm happy for you. When everything inside of me is going, this isn't something I want you to be happy for me for. I want you to see the glory of God. Verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I was reflecting in worship about eight years ago when we thought maybe we should plant a church. And our planting of the church, honestly, if you can ask next and anyone else, people say, why are you planting the church? I said, well, because... Well, we're convinced that it's the pattern of, of Acts, that, that people go and plant churches wherever God's called them. And we've had a deep sense of God calling us to plant this church. And, and one of the passages that kept coming up was Acts, uh, Matthew chapter 28, go make disciples of all nations. And so we felt God had called us here, and there was a sense of a, a crew that were here that were already part of this amazing uh, kind of uh, early stages church. And I remember going to some really deep loved ones and saying, we think we're going to go plant a church. We're really prayerfully considering planting a church in Bloberg. Aren't there enough churches in Bloberg? <laughs> when you hear that 10, 15, 20 times, you start going, maybe it's not a good idea. Then you start renting a house in Bloberg, and you still don't have a venue, and you say, we're looking for a place to meet, and they go, Aren't there enough churches in Bloberg? <laughs> you start to get discouraged. And as I'm worshiping and I look around and I see the people that God has added to this community, I am so glad that I pushed back. I'm so glad that we held on. I'm so grateful for leaders who stuck with us, who said, we need another gospel outlet. This isn't better than the church up the road. This is just another opportunity to help a world that has thought that they can do without God to understand that you can't do without God. And that God loves us madly. And that putting another church out here is an opportunity to proclaim the gospel again. And to put ourselves out there with everything that we've got. And eight years is just baby stages. It's just infancy. It's just the early stages of becoming a people who live with a gospel presentation inside of us. Let's stand. Let's pray. I think the band are going to join. And I wonder if this morning maybe, maybe it's just the conspiracy of mediocrity or apathy that's caught your life. Maybe you're preaching the gospel beautifully to every person that you get the opportunity with. Hey, praise God for that. I'm so proud of what's going on in this church. This is not a correction. This is us just getting to the text and carrying on and saying, God, won't you carry on doing what you've been doing? If maybe it's a wake up, 
Maybe it's a sense of, oh my goodness, I've been living for the approval of others, afraid of what they think. Maybe today is an opportunity to put down approval and to pick up trust and obedience. And to say, here I am, Lord. Send me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your amazing, beautiful grace upon our lives. We thank you for the wonder of the gospel that in love you found us long before we could ever have found you. At times we wish that we could present a simpler, easier to kind of palette gospel. Sometimes it's tricky to present a crucified Savior, died and resurrected. But we believe with all our hearts that it is the gospel that Paul says, that has the power to save. And today we don't shy away from the wondrous message that in Jesus Christ, who lived the life we could never live, who died the death we should have died, who's risen again and who is reigning in great victory, who gives us his spirit to live on mission, in His presence, being formed into His image, we consider that our highest privilege. And Lord, as we sing, we sing with a fresh declaration in our hearts that we are Yours and that You can do with us what we will. We know that it's better in the sight of God not to do the will of men, but to do the will of God. And so along with Peter and John and the lame beggar, we stand before our King and we say thank you for your grace. Thank you for your deep love. I do sense that some maybe are, it's a bit of a coming home moment. Maybe you feel like that prodigal type son experience. If you don't know the story, it's the story of a young guy who chooses to go his own way and say, hey, I don't want you, Dad. Eventually, he wastes all his money, he spends all his resources, emotional, spiritual, physical resources. He's lost everything, and he thinks, maybe if I go back to that house, to my dad's house, I could just be a servant. It'd be better than living in this pigsty. But his father sees him from a long way off as he walks back to the house, and it says the father pulled up his robes. He runs towards the son. He takes him in. He, he prepares a feast. He loves him into amazing, amazing sonship again. Maybe for some of us, you think, hey, I'll just sit on the fringes. Jesus invites you right into the center of the feast. He invites you right into the middle of God's amazing love. Maria received God's love even though she had done murderous, horrendous acts. We all need the love and the forgiveness of Christ. Maybe today is your day to receive the love and the forgiveness of Jesus. Maybe with all our eyes closed, you just want to pray this prayer under your breath with me. In your heart, you say, Jesus, I choose. I choose today to receive your love. Jesus, today I choose to acknowledge you are good. And I want to follow you and learn what it means to have my sins forgiven and to follow you into this life of freedom and joy. 
you pray that prayer, you sing along with all your heart. You've seated at the table right next to the loving Father. You sing like He's welcomed you right into the center. And we'd love to meet with you afterwards. Maybe you came with someone. Share what's happening in your story. Jesus, we rejoice in your love. We rejoice in your kindness. Let's sing.